Hello and welcome to the Teen Life Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Sammy, and today on the podcast, we have Sadie Sutton from the She Persisted Podcast. If you guys don't notice, I lost my voice a little bit this week, so it's a little bit raspy. Before we get into the interview with Sadie, I wanted to remind you guys to click on the show notes And that is where you can download my five easy actions to self-confidence. And they're super easy, simple things that you guys can start doing today, right now, to grow your self-confidence. Okay, so here we go into this episode. I hope you guys enjoy it. All right. Hey, you guys, welcome to the podcast today. I have another special guest on the podcast. I always get so excited when I have people come and join me on the podcast because I get to learn from them. You guys get to learn from them. And it's just really fun and special to hear other people's stories. So Sadie Sutton is on the podcast. Did I say you're right. Your last name, right? Okay. (laughs) Sadie Sutton is on the podcast today. And I just, I love her journey. I love her story. I love what she's done with the hard things that she's gone through. Like right now she has a podcast and she's really promoting teen mental health. And just like, you're kind of like a beacon of hope. I feel like for so many teen girls. And so tell us about yourself and why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself to the listeners. Yeah, of course. So I'm Sadie. I'm an 18 year old, almost 19 next month, a freshman at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and, and I took a lot of psychology classes. That's what I want to major in and eventually become a clinical psychologist. But that passion and the podcast, which is all about team mental health, is really based in my own mental health journey, which was predominantly my eighth grade freshman year of high school. Um, and I struggled a lot with severe depression and anxiety and a tons of different, tons of different ways that presented, whether it was in my relationships or unhealthy behaviors, um, feelings of like suicidality, all those different kinds of things. And things really came to a head halfway through my freshman year. And I ended up doing a year and a half of intensive treatment for depression and anxiety. And it completely changed my life. It saved my life. I went from being someone who believed that I would never get better, that I would never be happy, that I would never love my life. Um, That treatment wouldn't work for me. For some reason, I had it in my head that like I was the outlier. (laughs) Like it didn't matter what the data said. I would be the one person that it just wouldn't work for. Um, And I went from that perspective and being just consumed by extreme depression and so much dysfunction and being extremely suicidal to coming out on the other side, no longer struggling with depression on a daily basis, no longer being suicidal, having built a life that I was really proud of and that I loved and that I enjoyed. And so I had this moment where I was like, wow, if I could do this, then I really feel like anyone can. And obviously so many things went right in my journey. I had access to such amazing clinicians and treatment providers, and I was able to drop everything to get the support that I needed. And my parents were willing and involved. Um, So there was a lot of things that went well, but I also just was at such a low before that I really did feel strongly that if, if I could do it, then I thought that other teens could too, because I think especially as teenagers, we get caught in that headspace of like, well, I don't have a lot of control. Like my, my friends are decided for me based on where my parents decide I'm going to high school and my schedule's pretty laid out. And there's not that flexibility. It feels like you can't take complete ownership of your life and take complete ownership over your mental health. And I, I learned that was completely false, that I could do that. And I did. And so I wanted to share what worked for me along my treatment journey and 
try and share some of those amazing resources I had with teens that were struggling because I knew that so much of it was avoidable, so much of it was preventable, and so much of it I wish I would have learned earlier on when I was struggling. And that's kind of it in a nutshell. We can kind of dive deeper into any of that if if you want. But yeah, that's where the podcast started from. That's where my mental health passion started from. And yeah, so happy you're here. And you guys, just so you know, she has really cute nails and she does them herself. <laughs> I do. I like want to do more now, like nail reel TikToks. Yes. <laughs> I was watching your nail reel the other day and I'm like, I can't believe she does that all by herself, but they're It was really a cute. quarantine hobby. No, it's so funny. And I literally, one of my like best little anecdotes that I use when I'm like, we can take ownership. We can be critical consumers over what we allow in our life. Like, especially on social media, I literally pull up my Instagram explore page and I'm like, guys, it's all nail videos. Cause that's what makes me happy. Like, this yeah. is what your social media can look like if you want it to. And yeah. so it's just a fun little hobby, but it's like those moments of joy that are seem so small, but it's, it's a really fun thing. Yeah. They're so cute. Okay. So we're not here to talk about nails today, obviously. <laughs> Next episode. <laughs> yeah, it would be, but, um, so tell me kind of like the beginning of your journey, how you were feeling and how you kind of got to the point where you or your parents were like, Hey, we got to get you some extra help. Right. Because sometimes when yeah. you're like in it, and you're really depressed and you're really anxious, you don't really know that you shouldn't feel that way or that there's a different way that you should feel. And so what was kind of like that aha moment where you guys were like, okay, like we got to, we got to take the next step here. Yeah. I I loved what you said about, we get so normalized with our feelings and our experiences that we're not like, wait, maybe this doesn't have to be this way. And I think that's especially true for teens, because if you start to like slowly accumulate these negative thought patterns and these negative behaviors and feelings over your childhood and your like early teen years, you don't remember anything different. So unlike lots of adults who are like, oh, I noticed I felt a different way. And then I wanted to go back to how I was feeling before and pull myself out of this. You're like, I've been here forever. What do you mean? Pull myself out of it. This is it. This is life. And that's exactly what was happening with me. And so when I was going through this and middle school, beginning of high school, I had no awareness of what was going on. I just knew I hated everything. I would describe my like lack of motivation as just being a lazy person. I remember that being like my biggest personality trait where people would be like, oh, like, do you want to do this? And I'm like, no, I'm too lazy. <laughs> that was like 99% of my responses to things. So it was just like, it was what I knew. It was really low self-esteem. It was really negative thoughts. It was feeling isolated and not validated and misunderstood. And looking back and having done a lot of therapy and reflecting on how thoughts and relationships impact me, I can pinpoint a couple of belief systems that just really added fuel to the fire. And then once I shifted those, my mood shifted as well. And so one of the biggest ones was that I had this core belief that I didn't deserve love, which having had so many conversations within the mental health space and gone through it myself, I now have a really strong belief that everyone is innately deserving of love. Like it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, or if you're a newborn baby, 
you're deserving of love. Like as humans, we are. And again, it's like me being so critical that I thought I was the outlier that I wasn't deserving of love. So when I would go through interactions with friendships or with my parents, I would see them as not genuine. Or like if I saw someone on the street and I was like, oh, hi, it's someone I knew. I'd be like, oh, they're not really doing that. They don't mean that. They're just doing that because they have to, but not because they really want to like see me or they're excited about that. Like I just so genuinely believed that I wasn't deserving of that and that I wasn't allowed to feel that way. I also believed that I would never be good enough for my parents. And so that caused a lot of difficulty with asking for help and expressing emotions because I really felt that those made me less deserving of their love and less good enough. And so that was something that we had to work through in our relationship. Um, And we talked about initially that I had the belief that treatment wouldn't work for me. So even when I was at home, Um, And we'll get into how I got to this point, but when I was doing like therapy on an outpatient basis, or I was an inpatient trying to get support, I didn't believe it would work. So it didn't work because I wasn't fully invested. I was just going through the motions and like spitting out responses rather than wanting to get better and trying to get better. And so those belief systems caused me to navigate the world and just look for circumstantial evidence that I wasn't good enough and that my life sucked and that would never change. And there was a lot of things that made it worse. Like, I think if you just had those belief systems, you might not develop like severe suicidal depression for years, but it was that compounded with not feeling validated at home with, um, being like chronically sleep deprived and stressed out because I associated sleep with more mental health challenges. So like all of my basic needs were just not being met and that exacerbated the problem. And then the more I tried to get those emotional needs met when things like unhealthy relationships or codependent romantic relationships, self-harm, hospital stays, when those got involved, things just got even more complicated. So everything was a little bit of a mess. And in it was halfway through my fresh, no, halfway through my eighth grade year. And my parents noticed that I wasn't like I used to be. I was really a lot more withdrawn. My parents would pick me up after school and be like, how was your day? And I'd be like, fine wouldn't engage at all or we'd have friends over and I would be in my room or I I wouldn't talk to them at all um I I wasn't sleeping as much just a lot of changes in my normal functioning and my interactions that really weren't for the better and so my mom was like what do, what do we do and so at that point when these changes started to be noticeable I was at like a really low mood but it's been slowly building for years at that point um so when my mom was like, I don't know what to do. She called our pediatrician and was like, she's not acting normal. Like she seems depressed. She's not eating right. She's not sleeping. And he was like, okay, come in. We'll, t- we'll come to the office. We'll give her like a checkup. Um, and I would also make a psychiatrist appointment. So my mom made a psychiatrist appointment and I went to the pediatrician and he asked me like these typical depression questions and was like, have you noticed a deep interest in things? Whenever I have to take one of those surveys, it's just filled with self-judgment. It's so bad. It's so bad. (laughs) I've taken so many. Oh, same. But I was validating at the time because up until that point, I'd never been screened for any kind of mental health challenges and, or like not explicitly while I was struggling with them. And so I had never heard someone or a piece of paper, like put name to what I was experiencing. Like it was like decreased interest or loss of enjoyment. I was like, wait, that's what's happening to me or like changes in sleep. Wait, that's happening too. And so it was like, wow, maybe there is a reason or a category that these things are happening and that I'm not alone. 
and it was a lot less confusing to have those things on paper. And so Mm -hmm. I did my questionnaire and he was like, so you're definitely depressed. And I was like, great. Actually, I cried. I wasn't like great. And I was just, it was an odd moment because I felt so seen, but I was so sad and numb and withdrawn at that point from just constantly being hopeless and sad and, and just really, really depressed. And so he said to me, he brought my mom back in and he was like, she's definitely depressed. That's, that's really evident to me. And Sadie, the next steps is to go to the psychiatrist appointment later today. And if you don't do that, you're going to spend some time in the hospital, which definitely scared me. I was like to the psychiatrist appointment we go and things at that point were just in crisis mode. I was my emotional state was escalating so quickly. Like I was already so withdrawn by the time I got to the psychiatrist appointment later that day, I was just shut down. I wasn't talking. I, I sat there for an hour and I think she asked me to draw a pie chart of my feelings. And I wish I remember what I wrote because it would make for a funny story, but it was definitely something along the lines of just a circle. And it was like sad. And maybe there was like a little bit that was like hopeless. She was like, okay. And then the rest of the appointment, I ignored her, which like looking back, I feel so terrible that the number of appointments I would go to and just not say anything, what a waste of resources. But I was like in a really bad spot. Um, so we can do some self-compassion there. Yes, but, for sure. <laughs> but yeah. So I sat there for an hour. I stared at the ground. I drew my pie chart and she, she told my mom, she was like, I, it's, it's a really tough spot to be in because there was no insight into what I was experiencing. And we know that when we're treating mental health challenges, you don't run a blood test. It's really what the person is reporting. And so not having that line of open communication is a pretty dangerous spot to be in. Um, and that's true across the board for a lot of different mental health challenges. But at that point, again, I was so withdrawn. There was so much dysregulation with my sleep, my diet, my relationships were so isolated that she recommended the best step was to spend some time in the hospital. So I I remember I spent, I want to say seven or 10 days in the inpatient unit for adolescents. And that was my first hospital stay. I was 13. And so it was a, I was very young. I was one of the youngest ones there. And it was a very interesting experience. It allowed me to get out of that crisis mode and be less depressed to the point where I could re-enter being at home and no longer be like a non-functioning, tired blob, um, which is really how I was interacting with the world. And that was really like the kickstart of my treatment journey. And from there, I ended up being hospitalized three more times during that 12-month period. I did inpatient, I did outpatient, I did intensive outpatient, I did outpatient DBT, I did family therapy, group therapy, psychotherapy you name it, I tried it and it just wasn't working. I was still super depressed. I was still struggling with self-harm, dysfunctional relationships, conflict with my parents, um, suicidality, and things weren't shifting, at least not enough to make it worth it for me to continue to stay at home because my attendance was suffering. My, My livelihood was non-existent. I was struggling with all these panic attacks every day and I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. And so I was just miserable and my parents saw that and I look back and I'm so glad that they were able to advocate on my behalf when I couldn't because they jumped in. My mom did the research and and found a more intensive program that could meet my needs at the time. So halfway through my freshman year of high school, I packed everything up and I went across the country to Boston to do what I thought would be a four to six week stay at a residential program. And I didn't want to go. It was definitely a moment where I was told that this was the next step. And that was really scary for me. 
I remember it, it was called Three East McLean Hospital. Can't speak highly of it enough. But McLean was one of the first hospitals in the United States. So much so that it was actually an asylum before it was a hospital. And so it was also where Girl Interrupted took place. And so I was Googling and I was like, where am I being sent? I was beyond terrified. I was like, this is, I was 14. I was like freaking scared out of my mind, but I packed up all my stuff and we went across the country and my parents and I did this intake appointment with the clinicians at McLean. And I think there was nine, nine or 10 in the room. It was a bunch of psychiatrists and um, psychologists and there was social workers there. And the thing about McLean is that it's the number one psychiatric hospital in the country. It's a Harvard affiliated medical school. These people are highly qualified. And yet I still went into this and I was like, it's not going to work. Like I literally told them, they're like, this is what we do. Like, this is our approach. And I was like, I've done that before. Like, I'm still going to be depressed. It's not going to work. And one of the first questions that they asked me was, do you want to be here? And it was a no-brainer. I was like, I don't want to be here. Like I laid out that this was my next step. I couldn't go back to my old therapist. I wasn't allowed to stay at home, but I didn't want to be there. And they made it very clear. They were like, this is a voluntary program. Every single girl that you see walking around here is here because she wants to be here. She wants to invest in her mental health and she wants to get better. They're choosing to be here. And they also added on that if you don't want to be here, there's a lot of places where your parents can sign on a dotted line and you'll be there for a while. And that kind of scared me. But I was like, I'll think about it. I'll see if I can find the wisdom in this. I went home (laughs) and I watched The Bachelorette and ordered room service. And then the next day I was okay, ready to commit. Um, So I ended up being at McLean for 14 weeks, which was a lot longer than my initial four to six week estimate. And from there, I did uh, 14 months at a therapeutic boarding school. And so I, I look back on that time in treatment and the game changer is really those 14 weeks. It was when I shifted a ton of stuff. I started to build a relationship with my parents and have that open line of communication with the emotions I was experiencing, asking for help, working through the belief systems I was holding, which they had no idea I was experiencing. They learned how to validate. They learned the same coping skills that I was learning, which was something really cool about Three East, was that the parents would go to a parent group every Monday while we were in the kids group, which was unique and something that I haven't seen at any other programs um, in my experience. But I, I worked on my relationship with them. I started to get a healthy sleep practice in place. Same thing with diet and movement. Um, I started to unpack my belief systems and I started to understand my anxiety rather than just letting it control me. Um, and I, I was doing a program called, or a type of therapy called dialectical behavioral therapy, um, DBT. And if you've done CBT before, you might've heard DBT. And the great thing about DBT is that if you're living like a pretty functioning life, you're probably doing most of these things because it's like basic functioning life skills. And the way I like to explain it is that when your emotional needs aren't getting met, you get like further and further away from that like effective functioning to try and get those needs met. So DBT really brings it back and it's like, okay, this is how we advocate for our needs. This is how we validate someone else. This is how we distract ourselves when emotions are too overwhelming. And then we go back to the situation and process through. Um, And so unlike talk therapy, which just felt so abstract, I I struggled with that. I'm someone that likes to plan forward. I like to be very organized. I don't like feeling out of control. 
So instead of sitting in a session, which I've had happen before where I'm like, what do I do? And the therapist is like, what do you think you should do, Sadie? And I'm like, I'm asking you, like, that's why I'm here is for you to tell me. DBT is like, all right, let's try this skill. Let's look at what happened in this, the chain of analysis of this event and let's see where we could be more effective. Or you're feeling depressed and you're struggling to wake up in the morning. How can we get a better night routine so you're feeling more rested and plan moments of joy in the morning so that you want to get out of bed? That really concrete structured approach was really helpful to me. And it was really reassuring because again, like we talked about at the beginning, pulling yourself out of rock bottom when you've never not been in rock bottom is really hard to do. You're stumbling blindly towards a goal that you don't understand. And so having these concrete steps was just so much more reassuring because I knew I was working towards this general goal of a life worth living or happiness or, or joy or not being suicidal, but it wasn't like, this is what it feels like. This is what my day looks like. This is what my relationships look like in interactions. And so having these really concrete DBT skills was a game changer. And I, I've heard that from a lot of people that do DBT and that's why people like it so much. And the other thing that's unique about it is that it's evidence-based. When you go to a therapy session and you're like, please help me. And the person is like, what do you think you should do? There are studies that will show that going to therapy can have certain outcomes, but DBT is a very by the book. You learn the skills, you go to group therapy, your therapist sits on a board with other clinicians. You're going through a certain hierarchy of treatment. And so there's not that room for like messing up per se. There's not that room for like, well, I hope I get a therapist that I resonate with. Otherwise I'm just going to feel more isolated. DBT is shown to decrease depression and shown to decrease anxiety and shown to decrease suicidality. If you learn the skills, if you go to the certain therapy, if you use the skills coaching and your, your therapist is of course interacting with other clinicians. And so that was one of the reasons my parents chose it. But it's something that I think is is really unique and amazing. But yeah, so th- that was those 14 weeks and things really turned around. I, I left no longer being suicidal for the first time in years. I was waking up in the morning and not feeling immediately depressed, which was a huge shift. I was starting to have better sleep hygiene. I was starting to build relationships that were, were healthy and where my emotional needs were getting met. And then I spent the next 14 months at the therapeutic boarding school, really just continuing that progress and continuing to stabilize this immense change that I've made in my life because 14 weeks isn't a lot of time to go from being like suicidally, extremely depressed to functioning pretty well. And so I went back to normal public high school during my junior year and then COVID was crazy. So then we went back online and things have been so interesting in the state of the world since then. But my, my treatment journey really wrapped up um, right before my junior year, which was three years ago now. So it's been four years since I went to McLean, almost to the day it was three years ago. And, and things have really, really changed a lot since then. And I, I just felt so strongly about sharing my experience after recovering because I just so didn't believe that it was possible. And I, I wanted to tell people as a teen that it's possible rather than some clinician that I couldn't relate to when people were telling me the same thing. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story with us. I know sometimes it's being vulnerable, telling your story and, you know, kind of like, what are people going to think of my story? What are they going to, are they going to judge it? And I just think it's great that you're so willing to share your story and talk about your mental health struggles, because it's not something that is really talked about. I love your story because I can relate to it so much on 
a parent level. And I'm just one of those things that you like really talked about. I, I felt so strongly. So, so my, um, my oldest daughter, she was in a partial hospitalization program, um, for anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder. And we had tried, you know, it'd been a few years where we've tried like different doctors, different medications, different therapies. And it's just like, and you're just like, I don't even know what to do anymore. Our whole family was suffering me and my husband weren't getting along, like just kind of like, like how you were saying, like really such a dark place. And I wasn't even the one who was having the mental health struggle. Right. I was, I was the parent of the kid having the mental health struggle. And so I remember like after like a few years of our struggles and then like, finally, you know, somebody being like, Hey, let's put, let's do this partial hospitalization program for her. And I think she's a really good candidate. And I remember walking into that they said, they said six weeks, which I was like, okay, yeah, we can do six weeks. We ended up saying there's an underestimate guys. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not sure yeah. if they do that on purpose, but yes, we were definitely there for like over four months. I mean, I wouldn't have signed up for, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have signed up for a year and a half. I would have right. run for the Hills at that point. So. Yeah. so I was like, okay, six weeks, we can get this done. But yeah, definitely. It's like, we had to go at her pace. And she's the one who set the pace for us. It's like, we couldn't rush her in getting better faster. And so, but I just remember going into like her first day and we were checking in and they brought us to her room and there was a thick, a thick notebook on the table on there. And it was like letters from all the past patients to the patients that were now in treatment. And I looked at that book and I was like, we are not going to be one of those success stories. (laughs) Like I could never. (laughs) Yeah. And I was just like, I can't even read those letters because I can't even fathom our lives and this girl, my daughter being any different. It was just like, we were in the struggle. This was what we had known. And it was just like, so hard to imagine anything other than what we were already going through. And so I just, I love your point of, you know, there is hope. So I kind of want to know from you, like, what would you say to a teen who is just like hopeless, kind of how you were feeling like nothing's going to work for me. I'm that outlier. What's your advice for them? There's a couple of different things. I also want to add on to what you said about trying doctor after doctor. I was in my psych class this week she was talking about how the data shows that the most long lasting, like quote unquote success stories, like when you get to the point of no longer presenting with the symptoms that you go to treatment for is when you've had like six different tries of different therapies or psychologists or doctors or treatments. And that persistence through those initial six different tries then leads to that really long lasting sustained decades of quote unquote recovery, whatever that looks like for you. And I, I never had heard that before. And I was like, I had six plus therapists. This feels pretty accurate, um, but it sucks. Like who wants to hear like, oh, you're going to get a cold fixed, go to six different doctors. Like, it's just, it's, it's a terrible thing to hear. And mental health is so complicated. It's so subjective. It's such an abstract thing to try and treat and improve. And so it, it makes sense. But if you're at like doctor five and you're like, I I'm writing off therapy, just one more. Yeah, just one more. <laughs> one more. Um, but that was an interesting thing I heard this week. I was just gonna say, even with that, it's like 
even with six different doctors, you may be trying like 12 different medications. Right. And it's like, even within the medication change, like, I know that it can just get like, so exhausting. Like I'm just never going to feel any better. No, the medication change was a roller coaster. And I don't think I like really processed that until recently when I, I was talking to someone on the podcast about medication. And I was like, I was on a lot of different meds until I found what worked. Like it was two years until I got to something where I was like, this feels pretty good. And I still am on the same medication today because I'm like, why fix what isn't broken? Right. Um, but no, it's, it's trial and error. And it's, it's a painful process because even from the medication front, I think this is true for therapy as well. It's like a milligram increase every week or 10 milligrams every week. And it's just, you, you tight right up. And then you're like, mm, don't see a difference. Tight right back down. And it's, it's, it's a painful process because you don't initially see that shift that you so badly need. And so it's, it's hard, but it, it is so worth it. Yeah. I 100% agree. Totally. And I can't, can't what was my original question? Advice for teens. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> of course. Um, no, there are so many different, different pieces of advice. I would say, the first one we talked at the beginning about how we get so like normalized with what our feelings are, what our experiences are that we don't even think that it could be different. And I, I wished I would have spent more time when I was struggling, thinking about what I wanted my life to look like. And in DBT, they call that your life worth living because a lot of patients that do DBT are struggling with suicidality. So currently their life is not worth living. What would make it worth living? And so maybe that's that you have a certain cup of coffee every morning and you go to brunch on Saturday with your friends and you wake up and you feel happy and you have a night routine that allows you to sleep for your full seven and a half hours and feel refreshed and rejuvenated. And you, you don't experience extreme anxiety and you, you go to therapy once a week to continue to invest in yourself, like whatever that looks like for you. But I think the idea of researching what your life could look like and what you want it to look like is really powerful and it gives you that goal to work towards. And so whatever that looks like for you, whether it's listening to podcasts of people that you admire, whether that is watching TV shows that just make you feel good, whether it is doing a mood board or writing a list. I know some people are really into manifesting and they'll do like a whole page where they're like, I wake up at this time and I do this. And then I, they go through their whole day of what they want it to look like. And so I think having that tangible goal to work towards is a lot easier than just abstractly being like, I want to feel better. I want my life to be different. Like get micro. How do you want it to be different? What do you want it to feel like? What do you want your relationships to, to be like when you're in these interactions? So that's one piece of advice. The next thing would be to ask for help. And I talked about how at the beginning of my, my treatment journey, I went to that pediatrician appointment. And up until that point, I never let anyone in my circle as to what I was struggling with. I was really just on my own. And I went well, to the hospital. Hold, hold on. Just, just really quick yes. right there is I want, I want to make a point here is that a lot of times we don't know and we're not supposed to know. Yes. yes. Right. And, and it's like, we don't know what we're struggling with. We don't know what's going on mm-hmm. and, and that's okay. You're not supposed to know right? It's a process of figuring out. So I just experienced it before. Like I didn't know I was struggling with depression and yet I was like showing every single symptom in the book. Like that connection wasn't there. And so 
I, I was someone where it wasn't like I went to my parents and I was like, I think I need therapy. I was like handheld into the pediatrician and then handheld to the psych ward. And they're like, this is, we, we got to get some help here. But at that point I started to open up and I started to be like, these are the thoughts that I'm having. And this is what my day feels like. And I am experiencing these feelings. I'm feeling hopeless. I'm feeling alone. I'm feeling like people don't understand what I'm going through and just kind of letting people in. And so up until that point, I I hadn't done that because it was so scary to put words to it because it meant that it was real. It meant that it wasn't in my head anymore. It meant that I couldn't just pretend that it wasn't there. People knew about it. People would check in and check up on me. And, and that was a terrifying thing because I couldn't just avoid it and suppress it anymore. And it was for the best because I had people in my corner who were willing to use so many resources, so much knowledge that I never would have had to be able to help me in my journey. And no one was going to fight my battles for me. No one was going to go into therapy and talk about the things that needed to be talked about or feel the tough emotions or rewire the belief systems I'd lived by my entire life. That was me. But I had people who could encourage me to go to therapy or be there after to watch a funny movie to boost my mood or distract me when things were getting tough. And so I, I still to this day believe that that first time of asking for help and admitting that something is more than you can handle is the hardest thing you'll ever do. Because from there it's downhill because there's people in your corner, there's people who care about you, you know what they're doing. People have gone to school for decades to understand how to help treat you and get you the resources that you need. And they know what thought patterns are at play and what behaviors are causing more issues which again, like you would never know, like, why would you? And so I think that's, that would be my second piece of advice is to ask for help. And I also want to emphasize here for teens, do it to an adult. Just like I said, like, why would I know I was struggling with depression? Why would your friend Sally from math class know how to deal with you struggling with depression? Like she's not going to know any better than you would. And so, yes, our friends are so important for us to get our emotional needs met and feel connected and validated and loved but they're not our therapists or our treatment coordinators or a psychiatrist. And so going to a school counselor, a parent, an adult friend that you really trust, um, a family friend, another great one, an extended family member. There's also those um, like online chats. There's also like support lines you can call and they can just direct you where to go next. If you're like, I think I need help, but I don't know where to start. Maybe they'll be like, there's a great group therapy near you, or here's a list of therapists that offer like a free trial session, things like that. So asking for help from not a fellow teenager is, would be my second piece of advice. And the third would be to remember that you're, you're not alone. And I know it feels like you're alone and that no one else has ever experienced what you've experienced before. And I was in the exact same spot. And while it's true that no one will ever be exactly in your head with exactly your thoughts and life experiences and emotions, people understand the basic things like the belief systems, the emotions, the lack of motivation, the struggling to to get to school or to invest in your relationships or to feel okay. People get that. And they've been there, even if the nitty gritty kind of separates us. And so that can be really reassuring, can be really validating. And it kind of helped takes you out of that mindset that I was in where I'm like, I'm the outlier because people have been there before and they were able to get better and they were able to change their lives. So it is possible and it can be possible for you too. One of the um, things that 
the teens that I work with that they really struggle with is the self-judgment for the way that they feel. Like if they're feeling sad, kind of like, well, I have no reason to feel sad. Like nothing bad has happened in my life or like, like nobody can see that. I just don't have any desire to go out or it's like, it's not like you have a broken leg where everybody's like, yeah. Oh yeah. You have a, yeah. yeah. You have a broken leg. Oh yeah. You can totally stay in tonight. Like, don't worry. Mm-hmm. I'll go, I'll go get you dinner too. Right. Like you just yes. sit there. Whereas like, there's so much self judgment on themselves with the way that they're feeling and almost like there's no reason, like if there's no reason, then I shouldn't be feeling this way. But like, yeah. what do you say to teens who are struggling and they're just having a hard time being self-compassionate for themselves and to know like, Hey, this, this isn't something fake. This isn't something that you're making up in your head. You're not just being lazy, right? Like you really don't feel good. I was in the exact same spot where it was like part of me believing I didn't deserve treatment or deserve getting better was because I didn't go through some big trauma. I had a pretty good home life. Like my parents are married. We all live under the same roof. Like there's there, like when you look at my A score, like all is good and well. Like there was not a reason why I should be struggling to such an extreme degree. And when there's no cause, we like to find causes for things. It can be really, really difficult to feel like what you're going through is valid and real and, and okay. And so I think what helped me most there was educating myself and, and getting curious about how these things work. So whether that's reading a a book that like a therapist has written or listening to podcasts or exploring how like belief systems and little T traumas, um, how these things impact our mood, I think is really helpful to kind of understand what you're going through. And again, like people have been there too. This is a real documented thing. I think another thing that's really helpful for me is to think about depression and anxiety as from like the dimensionalist approach. So when I think of depression, I think of it as an emotion. Everyone will experience depression at some point in their life because it's a signal that something is off and out of alignment and not functioning well. You're not getting an emotional need met. And of course, once we get into the mental illness category, there's like a whole lot more at play there. But if we're like really oversimplifying and boiling it down, we think about it as an emotion and emotions don't discriminate. Everyone will experience depression at some point. Everyone will experience anxiety at some point because it's a warning sign. And yes, yours may be to a different degree, but all emotions are valid. So that experience of depression is valid. That experience of anxiety is valid. And that doesn't mean that like your reaction or how you're expressing it is necessarily like justified, but what you're feeling is okay. And it's natural. And there, there's no need to have judgment there because it's your body. It's your mind trying to say, Hey, something needs to be different. Um, or there's a threat if it's anxiety, like something might be a little bit scary. And so maybe the degree to which you're experiencing it isn't totally justified, but the emotion is. And so really understanding how things like invalidation as a kid can lead to these belief systems or being in a relationship where you don't feel seen and validated, like a friendship, how that can impact your mood. I think that's a really powerful thing. Um, we have a lot more like societal education, around things like PTSD or like grief, like someone dies, you feel depressed. You experience- And you're allowed, you're allowed to feel depressed. Exactly. And so supplement your knowledge on like little T traumas or depression or anxiety that don't come with these like giant causes. Um, and, And I do like the idea that things have causes, like emotions come up for a reason. Depression comes up for a reason. It's just a lot harder to find. Like for me, it was looking back at those belief systems and feeling invalidated in my relationships um, and feeling like my needs weren't met. And then that led to the depression. But it wasn't like 
oh, my dog died. And then I was really depressed. Like there wasn't that A to B connection. And so really kind of educating yourself of what those like sub factors can be helps you feel like your emotions are a lot more valid. Also therapy is huge. Talking to someone and hear a professional say like, yeah, that's totally normal. Like I see that all the time is so reassuring. And it again, goes back to the idea, that idea of like, you're not alone. It might seem like it, but I promise you're not. Yeah. And one thing that I tell the teens that I work with is we, we all want to be seen. We all want to be heard. Right. And it it can be frustrating for us when we are struggling with something like a mental illness or depression and people just don't understand and they don't get it. And I have people in my life that don't get it. They don't understand. Right. Mm -hmm. And even with my daughter, like she has OCD and, and I don't get it. I don't understand. But the part about that is like, they don't have to understand. And they most likely, if somebody hasn't struggled with a mental illness, they are not going to understand. Right. And so it's like, people don't have to understand. They don't have to get it in order for you to get help. And, and you don't have to be ashamed of it just because people don't understand. hundred percent. And I, I think it would be crazy to expect that everyone would get everything that we're going through like in any aspect of life, it's, it's just a universal truth. And I think this is where I really like the idea of like a chosen family versus a family of origin. Um, and understanding that like your family of origin might not meet all of your emotional needs. So where do you supplement? Is that therapy? Is that a friendship? Um, is that like a romantic relationship? How are you getting those emotional needs met? So you can show up as your best self in your family relationship and not just be plagued down by these mental health challenges because your needs aren't getting met. You're not feeling seen. You're not feeling validated. Um, and I, I think we forget that, that we're like allowed to outsource these emotional needs instead of just being like, the people in my life right now, they better fill them somehow when that's not necessarily the case. Right. Yeah. And, and I think it's important to, I call it like a want match where you have mm-hmm. people in your life that you want in your life that kind of have the same wants that you both have together. And I like, I love to play pickleball, right? All the listeners know mm-hmm. that I love to play pickleball. My <laughs> husband and my husband doesn't play pickleball with me. So I have to go outside of my immediate exactly. family and find the people that want to play pickleball with me. And you can do that. Like you can go outside of your immediate family and get your needs met for fun or love or support or whatever it is that you're wanting. Totally. And we're constantly changing and evolving. So as your mental health is changing and evolving, your relationships might not serve you in the same way. And that's totally okay. And it's again, like we get so normalized in what we've already always known that we forget to like think outside of the box and research. Like maybe you're listening to this podcast and you're for the first time hearing like, wow, I can like make new friends to get these new emotional needs met. Like, yeah, think about how much more there is to learn about mental health beyond what you just know and think about how empowering that can be to know the steps to take, to take ownership of your mental health and shift your experience. I so appreciate you being here today to tell your story with the listeners. I feel like this is just such a good podcast that you've just kind of really filled us in on so many things in your story and also given us such great advice and hope. So I've I'm loved glad. having that you was on. the intention. So I'm glad I came through. <laughs> yeah. Anything else that you want to share with the teens? I, I don't even know. I feel like we went over so many amazing things. I, I mean, the, the key points are always just like, you're not alone. It's okay to ask for help. And, and what do you want your life to look like and allow yourself to like, kind of go after that. Um, 
if if you want to keep hearing more, my podcast is She Persisted, and then my website is ShePersistedPodcast.com, and all the links for everything is there. But but yeah, I'm so glad we got to do this. Yeah, and those will I'll put all those in the show notes too. Awesome. Perfect. Okay. Thank you, Sadie. Oh, and really quick, you're at the University of Pennsylvania right now. Yes. All right. Yeah. You guys, she's a freshman in college and she's doing, you're rocking your freshman year, right? I'm trying. Yes. <laughs> We're doing yes. our best. Yeah. So even though you've had like such big challenges and you've been through a lot, like they're look at, I'm so proud of you right now. Look at all you've gone yeah. through and you're, you're doing great. And I feel like when I went, when it came to my college applications, I talked about my mental health and that was something as I was doing it, I was like, is this a good idea? Like we still have a lot of stigma in our society. And I did a couple part series of this on the podcast where I kind of explored it. And I had like an admissions person on to be like, what's your perspective here? But I think that was my biggest selling point. Like how many people were applying to colleges and being like, so here's the deal. I've been to three high schools, done a year and a half of treatment but I have this podcast and I'm trying to make a difference. And this is what I'm doing. Like, it's not a lot of people. And so it really was like what seemed at some points or what society might seem as a weakness ended up being a strength. And I think having all those skills in my toolbox coming into college just made me even more prepared. Yeah. And I I love that, that on the other side of our challenges, there's always that almost like a rainbow experience where, where we've gone through it and then it's our turn to help somebody else. And just having that empathy to be able to hold somebody else's hand through an experience that they don't think that they're going to get through, but you know, they are right. And I just, I think that that makes all the difference. And so I appreciate the work that you're doing with teens who are struggling and just kind of need to hear that reassuring voice. Like, Hey, you can do it. If I can do it, you can do it. <laughs> teen to teen. I got you. And I've like been thinking about this a lot. Like at some point I'm going to outgrow the teen to teen. And I'm going to be like an old person being like, okay, I was a teen one time and I promise I went through this. I'm going to have to like outsource <laughs> someone else to like read my scripts. And get <laughs> no, I think you'll still be able to relate. I haven't outgrown the teen group. The goal is to work with teens forever. I think it's such a unique, like critical period. And like the data shows that mental illnesses develop. 12 to 14 and impact people for the rest of their lives. So it's just, it's such a powerful full time period and there's so much potential. Yeah. Awesome. So good to have you today. Mm-hmm.